you for joining the Inner Circle podcast uh, this week. Um, I have with me Corey Williams uh, from Centrify. Uh, thank you for joining, Corey. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Good to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Corey. I, I work with Centrify. I've been with them for about ten years. Um, I uh, am a senior director for products and marketing, and uh, looking forward to having this conversation today. Excellent. Um, before we go into that, if you don't mind my asking, ten, ten years is a is a is a good long time to be at any company these days, um, especially in tech. Um, is that is is Centrify like where you've worked basically your entire professional career, or were you somewhere before that? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, it, it is very unlike me to stay somewhere ten years. Uh, I, I'm kind of a startup junkie. This is my sixth startup company in Silicon Valley. Uh, I've always worked in the area of improving um, connectivity and security within IT um, and worked for a series of companies before this. Um, but I keep staying at Centrify because we keep hitting interesting milestones and solving new problems. So it sort of kept me interested. It's kept my focus. And, and uh, now it, it feels a little bit like part of the family. And I, I want to make uh, I, I want to kind of see what happens next. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that, that's interesting because, you know, I, I, like I said, uh, most of the people I know, tend to jump more than that, either by choice or not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I, I think there is probably a, a sort of a point of no return, so to speak, where it's like in the two to five year range, you know, maybe you can jump ship. Once you hit the 10 year mark, it's kind of like, all right, are you really in for the long haul? Yeah, I mean, maybe I can find something better. But, uh, uh, but from my perspective, I only find things that are are similar. And, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I come from companies where we are solving really fundamental problems from the very beginning with a blank piece of paper. I'm the first person through the door to try to help find the first customers. And that's what I was with Centrify. But, um, but we keep hitting interesting milestones of not only things like growing our revenue and growing our presence, but we keep solving new problems. And, uh, and we keep, and it keeps getting more important. Uh, 10 years ago, the security industry was a very small uh, industry. Uh, this last year, over $86 billion was spent in security. So it's one of the hardest, hottest uh, IT markets right now. And it's no wonder with all the, the headlines of breaches and, and state interference um, that it, this has become uh, a great market to be in. So it's kept me interested. Agreed. Um, and that's actually a, a, a pretty good segue um, into the thing I want to talk about first. Um, uh, which is the the idea of zero trust. Now, you know, I've worked in the security industry. I've been writing about the security industry for longer than I care to say. You know, <laughs> fifteen plus years now. Um, and one thing I've I've recognized, uh, especially in recent years, is that more and more at the point of compromise or the point of data exfiltration or, or, you know, whatever the issue is, almost every attack is a quote unquote inside attack at that point. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, you trust employees with access to certain, certain assets and data as a function of their job. You know, so, so, you know, you can obviously have a legitimate insider attack of someone abusing that trust, but you've also got attackers with, stolen credentials or hacked credentials who, you know, from the point of view of your network and from the point of view of the company 
are are acting as the person you trust. So you know they're they're using stolen or hacked credentials, but from your perspective, that's still an inside attack because they're they're using authorized credentials. And then you've got things like third party vendors or suppliers, you know, connecting into your network that you trust that also expose you to risk if they get hacked or compromised. So all of those things, you know, and that, that whole that whole idea really makes the case for uh, the concept of zero trust. So uh, t tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, no, you bring, you, you bring up the point in a very articulate way. I mean, the, the challenge we've had um, is of the $86 billion spent on security. So much of it was spent on trying to prevent bad actors from getting inside the network. We've kind of, you know, whether they get through the endpoint or through a VPN connection or through some partner connection, we're trying to keep the bad guys out. What if we just assume for a second that the bad guys are already in? Now what do you do? And I think that's the principles behind zero trust, is that you can't build a wall tall enough or deep enough that will prevent people from getting in um, because it's as simple as, as you said, of stealing a password credential and now you're coming in as someone is already trusted. So if you assume that bad actors already on your network, then you can start to say, well, what can I protect? And that's when you start to back up to the to the individual resources, like the, the user's identity. Maybe a password is not good enough anymore. Um, the most recent Verizon uh, data breach investigations report, which was published uh, here recently, stated, stated as much that there is no password that is complex or long enough that you can rely on it alone for security. You have to start uh, uh, adding layers of security. And so one way to do that is to verify the user with additional layers. So it's not just a password, things like multi-factor authentication and behavior-based access control that looks to see whether or not that user has uh, is doing what he typically does or if he's breaking his typical behavior pattern when it comes to accessing an application or data or the network. Um, and then there's additional steps as well, which I'm sure we'll go into, but you're, you're exactly right. The problem is, is the network perimeter, that traditional approach just hasn't worked. Um, you need to start to, to, to move towards verifying every user, validating that the device is, is okay to access the resource and that it belongs to that user and that you're limiting the access and privileges they have once they access that resource. You have to move the protection closer to the individual assets you're trying to protect rather than trying to gather them into a trusted garden, which just doesn't exist anymore. Agreed. Um, yeah, so, so one of the things... Yeah, just on a, on a personal level, um, I've adopted two-factor authentication, multi-factor authentication where it's offered. So with my Google account, with Facebook, with Twitter. Um, and, you know, it it does add a step and it is kind of a pain in the ass sometimes. You know, mm -hmm. like every single time I want to log in, you know, I go to log in from a new browser and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, we have to authenticate you. Now I got to go get my phone so I can go to the, you know, code generator part of the Facebook app and, and get that. Or I have to wait for Twitter to send me a, a text so I can enter that. And, you know, so it is, it is a little bit of a pain in the ass. But I think, you know, for me, because, because I'm a security person, it's not that big of a pain in the ass. And, and it's an acceptable trade-off. But I think for a lot of, for a lot of end users, it's just, you know, they need it to be completely frictionless and you know yeah. and and they, they just if, if you give them the choice of hey you can either just log in or if you wait for a text from from us with a code then you can have a little bit better security they'll be like ah i'm good 
Yeah, and I think that you're hitting a really important point. Um, it's a societal issue that we all have to deal with. Do we value our privacy and protection more than we value convenience and expedience? And and the jury's out. We we still behave in such a way that we will take the path of race resistance. We will maintain bad security habits because it's easier and more convenient. So. That's why it's important that you start to eliminate the points of friction as you add on these additional layers. So as an example, you mentioned all the different accounts you adopted the two-factor experience for. It's difficult across all of those different accounts to have the same two-factor experience. So one is starting to consolidate that so you're not adding a different uh, uh, multi-factor authentication experience in front of uh, uh, every application or every resource you're trying to access to consolidate that into one experience. And two is to make that, that a very convenient experience. Hundreds of millions of dollars has been spent in, in multi-factor authentication so that you don't have to carry around that little key fob. And it's as easy as a, a notification getting pushed to your device that you acknowledge through your thumbprint on your phone. That is much easier than transcribing a six-digit code into a mobile phone while you're driving down the road 60 miles an hour, which you shouldn't do, but you, you get the point. And finally, and this is probably the most important, is that much of that research is going into machine learning and artificial intelligence that looks at patterns of behavior because as we know, we're trying to prevent that less than 1% of activity that's fraudulent. The rest of it is a person going about his day doing his thing. So when you combine machine learning and multi-factor authentication with technologies like single sign-on, you can say this user is accessing an app he always accesses from a device we know on the corporate network during business hours. We should just give him silent sign-on and not prompt him for any authentication because we know that that user is sufficiently protected in his current mode. But if he's accessing an app he's never accessed before or during off of work hours or from a country he's never been, then we should block his access or certainly ask him for many more layers of protection. And I think it's that artificial intelligence layer that finally tips the scales that allows us to move away from what is considered more expedient, um, which is typing in all these passwords, which I think you and I would agree is really not that convenient. You forget them, you write them down, you reuse them. Self-managing passwords is never going to be a security approach that's going to last long term. But we do have to reduce that friction to make it easier for users. Yeah, well, and, you know, to that to that point, like let's just use the the Facebook example. Um, you know, if I log in from you know a, a new browser, then it asks me to enter the code from from the code generator. All right, fair enough. But I can do that. You know, if I get a brand new computer and I and I do that in the Edge browser, and it says, okay, you're good. Well, now if I go over to if I open Chrome on the exact same computer and, and go to Facebook. It'll ask me to go through the two-factor authentication again because it's looking yeah. at it at like a browser-specific level, and and to the point you just made, it would be great if Facebook could apply just a little bit more intelligence to that equation and say, hey, look, this is from the exact same public-facing IP, or this is from the exact same MAC address that just that we just authenticated, or whatever. Um, you know, we don't need or to ask him again. Combination of things, we know the fingerprint of that device or we've put a strong certificate on that device as part of managing it in the enterprise so that we know that device is the same person regardless of what browser or app it comes from. Yeah, it does take a level of sophistication, but you know, this has been done before. Financial services companies put these really blunt instruments around fraud detection, right? If I'm on a road trip and I've gone 100 miles from my hometown and try to fill up with gas, 
I, I would get declined and had to call into my credit card. It was very inconvenient because they were concerned about fraud. But over time, that became less and less intrusive. It learned my patterns of behavior that I do do road trips and that I don't need uh, the same level, but I still get fraud alerts when it makes sense. When someone overseas is using my card because it got stolen in some hack, then I get a notice that I should pay attention to. And so I think, I think the same way is happening with more general access technologies for use in the enterprise. So they're getting smarter and they're getting better at looking at the individual behavior patterns of users so they can make smarter decisions about when to interrupt them. And then, like you said, the technologies themselves are improving so that we're reducing those points of friction um, at, at, at a rapid pace. Right. And to go back, I guess, sort of to the, to the original point, when you look at like the target hack with you know their their HVAC contractor you know network you know being you know being the point of entry or you know and, and you know other other attacks like that where you have a trusted third party that's doing something or if it's a you know even if it's just a, a an attacker has stolen credentials through a phishing attack and is you know moving around in your network I mean all of those things are you know, again, to sort of under underscore the point of zero trust. Yes, there it makes sense to trust those people or those companies in a certain context, but you should be able to look at that and say, okay, well, you know, I know that Tony works in this office. This is when he's normally at work. Okay, now Tony is logging in from Tel Aviv. That's weird. That is weird. You know, <laughs> and so, you know, or, or hey, we've given the HVAC contractor uh, certain access to be able to monitor the things they need to monitor and now those credentials are being used to you know access a customer database that seems strange you know so it's just, it's just a matter of taking that taking that trust and applying a little bit more intelligence but I think you know it flipping that around with with zero trust and, and instead of saying okay I'm gonna trust everything you do you know, unless you do these things, it, it does seem to make more sense in, in today's security landscape to look at that from the opposite perspective and say, I'm going to sort of not trust anything you do unless I can, you know, somehow, you know, verify it along the way. That's right. So instead of moving from a, a trust but verify mode, uh, move to a never trust, always verify mode. And, and again, those three pillars work together. So verifying the user's identity through using these layers, they work together to both reduce the friction that a user experiences, but also increase the level of, val of verification that goes into their identity. And not allow that identity to be used just from anywhere, but only from known devices that we have some sense of their, uh, that they belong to that user, that they're being used in the right location, and that they are, have a, a good enough posture that we would trust them. And then finally, you hit on this point, it's that important pillar of limiting the access and privileges that they have on the target systems to just what their role requires. Just because I have access doesn't mean I should have broad access. And so by limiting that level of privilege, you can prevent a lot of these breaches, or even if a breach does happen, you can prevent them from escalating to a, 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 a big incident. And, and rather, you can contain it because they don't have the ability to move around within the network or across systems or to do more than a target set of activities within that application or server. Right. Well, I remember when I was when I was on the other side of the fence working in security, it was you know kind of during the, the time frame where it was a big deal 
that everyone just sort of had local admin rights on their PCs by default. That was just yep. that was just the way it was. And then you know someone came along and said, hey, you know what? You could really limit the scope of an attack if you just didn't make everyone an admin on their on their machine and limit what an attacker can do. But the backlash from the users in terms of wait a minute, you're not, you know now I can't just add whatever apps I want. Now I can't do this. Now I can't do that. And I mean, it took it took a long time I think to kind of like retrain people's thinking to to accept that it's okay that they're not an admin on their computer. It also uh, it also required the the products to become more mature and tuned so that you could grant them things that made sense. You can join your own home network, you can add a printer, but we're not going to let you install apps that require low-level access or we're not going to allow you to um, you know, uh, add VPN clients or whatever it is that you want to protect so they only have certain ways of connecting and it was a trade-off and it took a while for that to happen. And I think that's true of a lot of identity access technologies is that they started out as very blunt instruments, always prompting you for another factor from a keychain <laughs> fob. No one liked that. But I think that we are at a point now where these things, there's a series of technologies um, that can be used together. So those simple principles, verify the user, verify the, validate their device, limit their access and privilege, you kind of start to hearken or think about certain technologies like um, single sign-on, multi-factor authentication, uh, mobility management for device security. Those things are often found in identity as a service providers if you're looking for uh, a hybrid or cloud-based um, solution. Um, same thing with privileged uh, identity and access management. That's a category of products that includes a password vault. It includes um, you know, privilege elevation management and uh, session recording for uh, IT administrators. Well, all of those technologies can be bought by individuals and integrated to, you know, by, by from individual companies and integrated together to provide this zero trust stance. Um, and that's what we see a lot of folks doing now. Um, but what's interesting is there's a new class of solutions, which we refer to as next generation access, um, that starts to integrate these use cases together. Multi-factor authentication makes sense whether or not you're logging into a SaaS app or an on-premise app or a laptop or a server you need multi-factor authentication. You shouldn't need a different experience for each one of those. In fact, all of those different resources need authentication, access control. Um, they need the ability to limit what they can be done. And, they, and, and, and that should come from a single policy engine rather than a separate policy engine for each type of resource. So next generation access is the, is the um, coming together of those technologies into single solutions. Um, it may sound familiar uh, to those in the security industry because next generation firewalls did something similar. They took that next class of firewalls and they combined it with web access filtering and, and other um, uh, inspection tools that happened on the network and they combined them together into one platform and called that next gen firewall. And now that's the way that all firewalls are bought. You, you get a multifunctional capability in one. Uh, same thing is happening in identity. And, uh, and that's referred to as, uh, as next-gen access. It's a technology platform to help implement a zero-trust security approach. And it's also interesting because it, it seems that, you know, you, you bring up the next-gen firewalls, but it, it, there's been sort of a cyclical nature of those types of things um, over time in terms of, 
when I was working in uh, in security and, and working in, uh, we were, I was doing endpoint security and antivirus and, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but you had, you know, you, you, you wanted to have your firewall, you wanted to have some kind of spam filter, you wanted to have an antivirus. And the debate was, well, do you go out and buy best of breed of each one of those things and then try to hobble them together yourself? Or do you go to one vendor and get something that is all managed through a single console and just seamlessly works together? And, and there are trade-offs to both of those concepts. Um, but, you know, and so similarly, you know, here, you know, like you say, you're, you're kind of taking identity as a service, enterprise mobility management, privilege access management, and, you know, most organizations have those things, or at least, you know, some combination of those things already in the traditional access model. But if I'm understanding you correctly, when you're, when you're talking about next-gen access, you're talking about taking those instead of having three separate products or four or however many more separate products and offering them as, you know, a unified whole so that, it, you know, you, like you said, you have the one policy engine and it kind of works seamlessly together and not yeah. as five different things. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. You shouldn't have to sacrifice best of breed functionality to have something that's well integrated out of the box. I think that a lot of uh, industries as they mature, um, it's natural to take things that used to be point solutions and, and aggregate them into one. We saw that Microsoft Office, we've seen that all over the place. So um, I think that the same thing is happening with an identity and access. Uh, Centrify does provide a next-gen access platform. It does incorporate uh, the, cap- the, the capabilities of, of IDAS and enterprise mobility management and, and privilege access management. But if you look at the rankings from the major analysts like Forrester and, and others, they still rank uh, our individual capabilities in those markets as being best of breed. So you don't necessarily have to give up the best of breed to get what you rightly point out is a a single policy uh, infrastructure, a single console, and, and that sort of thing. That all said, we have plenty of customers who don't adopt our entire platform, but they have a particular need. Maybe they already have a password vault on premise, but they're looking to solve a single sign-on problem. With a lot of those customers, they will choose to adopt us, and we can work seamlessly with, with other vendors. The important thing is that they are solving all of these important pillars of zero trust, and that's, that's, the, that's the key message. But we also see companies who look across their portfolio of vendors and say, you know, there's a lot of identity vendors in, in, this, uh, in my portfolio. Do I really need to pay each one of them separately? Do I really need that many support contracts? Do I really need that many different vendors? Uh, do I really need to pay for that integration, all those separate skill sets? And so we see over time that they look to migrate to fewer vendors and consolidate just because there's a sense of, of uh, vendor fatigue going on. Next week is the RSA conference, a big conference in the security industry with thousands of vendors. And it's really hard for a CIO to think, gosh, do I need to take a pitch from every one of these vendors to learn what I need to do? They're starting to get a little bit of fatigue. And so they want to start to look at fewer solutions that can do more of their strategic approach for them. And that strategy is increasingly we're seeing is, is something that like uh, the zero trust security approach. It, it, it's interesting you, you, from the, when you talk about vendor fatigue and uh, it's actually one of, the, one of the areas of having the multiple vendors that, that I had forgotten about and didn't mention is, 
you know, whether or not they're best of breed, when you've got five different vendors, it makes it that much more difficult to get support because you end up getting it very quickly into finger pointing right. of, you know, oh, well, you know, it's not our, it's, it's not us, it's your firewall. You know, oh, it's not the firewall, it's a problem with the drivers, you know, in, in your antivirus or whatever. And, and, you know, trying to get different companies to cooperate or, or even, even attempt to troubleshoot problems that might involve competitors or other vendors is like pulling teeth. And so, you know, that, that actually, you know, now that you, now that you remind me, that actually was also a primary driver that and cost to yeah. you know, the kind of the, 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 the trend towards, you know what, I'm just going to get a unified solution from one vendor because when something goes wrong, I want one person I can call who can fix the problem without telling me it's someone else's problem. You know, we did a, um, a study with Forrester where they actually went out and talked to over 200 different uh, enterprises around their best practices related to identity and access management and found that those companies who adopted, you know, were more mature, had, had adopted more of the best practices related to uh, identity and the zero trust security, uh, they were experiencing half the number of breaches that less mature companies were. And so what's interesting about that is that by doing anything in this area of identity, you are going to improve your chances of reducing a breach. But you rightly bring up the cost and complexity issue. There's also a couple of use cases that you can't do by assembling best of breed. I'll give you an example, and that's the real-time analytics, where you're looking at the behavior of a user and deciding for each and every access attempt whether or not um, that represents a risky behavior for their profile. That's hard to do if you have to call out to a third-party system and add several seconds or more to that user's login experience. It's disastrous if you're trying to do that at the API level, where every API call needs to be validated. And so by having it integrated, you can have it within the same engine, within the same running infrastructure, and have some of that real-time enforcement and application of artificial intelligence that's hard to do in real-time if you assemble it separately. Very true. Um, all right, well, I think that uh, that should wrap things up, I think, for now. Um, I, I will also be at RSA next week, so uh, fun, fun times. Um, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time to join me. It was a very, uh, very interesting call. And, you know, I mean, I could, I could probably go on for another, you know, half hour or so talking about this, but I'll spare the podcast listeners. Part two. <laughs> All right. Uh, take care. Have a good weekend. And I will, uh, you know, I, 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 will you be at RSA next week? I will and uh, would look forward to seeing you in our booth where we'll be demonstrating all these technologies and talking to folks about zero trust security. Excellent. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. This episode of Inner Circle is sponsored by Centrify. The traditional approach to security is based on the concept of trust but verify. Companies trust employees, they trust vendors, suppliers, partners and typically only watch for suspicious or malicious activity uh, that seems anomalous. The reality though is that the suspicious and malicious activity generally originates from those trusted accounts. Two-thirds of companies are still breached anyway and more than 80% of those breaches involve weak default or stolen passwords. Centrify provides next-gen access with zero trust security. In other words, security based on the premise of never trust, always verify. 
You can click the Centrify logo at the upper right of the Techspective website uh, to learn more or visit directly by going to centrify.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-I-F-Y.com. Go check it out. Thank you for listening. I hope that you uh, got some entertainment or education or, or some value out of uh, the time you invested listening to the podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would give me that feedback and let me know what you like and what you don't like, either in the comments, uh, on the on the blog post on Techspective, or uh, review the uh, podcast in iTunes. Um, but regardless, uh, again, I just really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. Thank you.